friends, Greg Kokel here, and uh, another show on our 30th anniversary year. And I mention that because our opening music is so fabulous. One of our friends at STR has written that just for us. Uh, and I guess we've been using it for, what, about seven or eight years now. But we had some different music for many, many years. And it just occurred to me, wouldn't it be fun? Would it be fun? I don't know. Just to – maybe we don't even have it, but just run some of the old music opening – to start out the show in a kind of recognition of the past. And so maybe, can, do we have that somewhere? Can we try that sometime? We don't have to do it today, obviously. But maybe we'll we'll see about that and work it out. Um, I can't even recall it in my mind. But the minute I hear it, of course, I'll it'll be familiar to me since it's uh, drilled into me for, you know, two shows a week um, for what the, what many many years actually been on the air longer than we've had an organization thirty three years now uh with radio but uh anyway, just a thought in uh recognition of our uh thirtieth year anniversary and of course as we send out our solid grounds um every other month uh, Amy has resurrected um solid grounds from the past that are, are i think in a certain sense, quintessential stand-to-reason pieces, and uh, maybe you'll recognize them from the distant past. Maybe this will be your first time uh, reading them. Fine, we'll get double duty out of them, and uh, some are introduced to some of the things in the past. The thing is, as far as I'm concerned, I look back on the titles of all the things over oh, more than 20 years we've been sending out solid ground, so that's six times a year times 20 What's that, six twos or 12, 120 different articles over the years. And um, some of those that kind of are in the dustbin, they're on, online. I think most of them are still there. But uh, they're they're worth reading again. I sometimes will read them. I say, boy, that's pretty good. Who wrote that? <laughs> and they go, oh, that's mine. <laughs> it's great. But I get, um, in a certain sense, instructed by it if I was of, of a different way of talking, I'd say, I get ministered to and blessed. But uh, no, I get instructed by it and sometimes chastised by the things that I've written years ago. And uh, and now I have to re- remember or, or apply them anew to my life. Now, I mentioned last show that last weekend, or last week, I should say, um, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with some dear friends and meeting some new friends, both faculty style and also in uh, in the group at Cross Examine Instructor Academy. This was the sixteenth year with Frank Turek and uh, Brett Kunkel was there too, and Brett and I. We're in the very first year, both of us were, and since then they've expanded the faculty. Natasha Crane was there, and uh, and Elisa Childers, and both Natasha and Elisa, ironically, those superb presenters now were actually students at CIA in the past. And in fact, that's where I met uh, Elisa. <clears throat> Originally, she was in the first, uh, she had an, the regular CIA, and she was even in my class where I had to um, critique one of her talks. I don't remember that, as it turns out. Um, but uh, when she did the advanced CIA, we spent an hour and I was critiquing her writing. She was not a published author at the time. And uh, so that was that was an experience, she says, because I was really straightforward with her, but she was talking about it this weekend. But the key here is these these are folks that are now on the team, and they are fabulous first-rate presenters. Now, when they were at CIA, they weren't starting from ground zero. 
they already had experience. And Elisa, uh, many of you know her from from uh, the Zoe Girl group. So she had a lot of experience, and she's a longtime Christian. Her dad is Chuck Chuck Gerard, who is uh, the I think lead singer of Love Song, one of the very first uh, Christian groups coming out of the music groups coming out of the Jesus Movement, and uh, uh, before CCM. Contemporary Christian music was even—they didn't even call it that. Uh, So she's accomplished in that way. But since then, she had had a great crisis of faith, which uh, caused her to look more carefully about at Christianity that she had received to discover it was actually true. And now she is writing in response to those who were abetted her crisis of faith, and that is the progressive Christian crowd, and writes— uh, aggressively regarding those issues, does a great job and speaks on those issues, too. So it was really nice to be with them. And Melissa Doherty, I mentioned, has her own program dealing with New Thought and New Age and the like, and um, and, and Frank and, and Brett and uh, uh, Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist, and, uh, and uh, Alan Parr, new for me, but apparently has quite a following online. <clears throat> And with his own, uh, what, YouTube channel or, or whatever. So all of these people just tremendously experienced in uh, communicating truth. Um, Richard Howe was there uh, from SES and philosopher. So it was just fabulous to be with all these people again, but then also with the group of people <clears throat> that um, every year has getting a, a, a higher and higher cross-section, so to speak. So when we first started 16 years ago with CIA, well, there was a lot of beginners, and uh, it was rough going for a while because so many of the presentations we were helping them improve were very amateurishly done, just saying. But over the years, uh, a higher quality of person has become part of that 60 or so people that show up for CIA every year, end of September, rather end of July, early August, um, at whatever location we're at. I'm not sure where they're going to be next year, but there will be a next year, God willing, because this has been really important. Okay, this year we are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at uh, Calvary Chapel there, and so I tip my hat and thank the crowd at Calvary. <clears throat> We've we did one what two years ago at Calvary out in uh, Chino Hills, and uh, that was um, let's see who was the pastor there. Who's the Calvary pastor of Chino Hills? I'm trying to get the attention of my team here, but they're not paying attention. Who's the Calvary Chapel pastor at Chino Hills? Um, yeah, Jack Hibbs. Uh, sorry, Jack, I forgot your name, but um, spoken at his church before a couple of times, but nevertheless. And we, so we, we love these guys. Uh, a lot of the churches that we've been hosted by uh, CIA, it's been great. But I saw something on a wall in a Calvary Chapel. Um, it was back in, you know, in the, like, where their offices were and everything, and it was a statement of a series of principles, uh, not exactly values, maybe they were values, you can call them a couple of things, but pr- operating principles. Here's what guides our, our approach to things. Um, for one, one said, dedicated to doctrine. All right. Another one said, culture of honor. And then there was a paragraph describing what they meant. Another one said, risk it all. Another one said, it's not a job. Another one, lock shields. 
and I didn't read all the stuff in all of them, but you can kind of get a picture. Yeah, this is pretty good. These are kind of ways we think about ourselves and our job. Yeah, we're locking shields. We're in a battle. So we're going to do our battle together and be more effective that way. I, I suspect that's what it's about. On a mission was another. Generosity multiplies capacity. Now, that seems obviously had to have to do with giving, but their understanding giving very self-consciously in the area of productivity. Generosity multiplies capacity, and they probably developed other aspects of generosity as well. But the one that caught my eye that I want to talk about here is this one. It was number eight, and it said, for anyone, not everyone. For anyone, but not everyone. Now, when I saw that, I liked it immediately because my mind went in a particular place. When I read the, the text and the characterization, which I'll read to you in a moment, I realized that they were thinking of this a little differently than the way I was thinking of it, in part. But then as they ended the explanation, I realized we're on the same page. Not that I would have differed. I was just making a different application of it than they were making. For anyone, not everyone. And here's what it said in describing this value, this operating principle. Our church is for anyone that will come. But we realize that not everyone likes the way we do things. And that's okay with us. And here's the line that really captured my attention. We refuse to cater to personal preference in our pursuit of God. And while everyone is important to us, we are more concerned with reaching the lost than pacifying the critics. And I thought here about the body of Christ at large. Everyone is invited. Jesus' arms are open wide. Whoever will may come. It is open to anyone, but that does not mean there are not requirements for membership. <laughs> and I don't mean like whether, you know, like here's how our church has. I'm talking about the body of Christ, and there are requirements for membership. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, Paul wrote to Titus, teaching us to deny ungodliness. So he's saying, look at Paul there in, in what, chapter 2 of Titus? Here it is. Our arms are open wide. Come into the kingdom. The kingdom has boundaries, though. The kingdom has rules. The, the goal is to bring you into an environment where you're living a different kind of life than you're living now. The life you're living is on your own with you on the throne. You're doing your own thing. You do you. Be authentic. Scripture says your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That's why you don't follow your heart. You don't be authentic to that. Come in, get forgiveness, get reconciled to God, then live well. What is living well? The way God intended you to live. That's a specific thing. That's a specific way. There are rules. You can't just do whatever you want and then complain, well, you're not very loving. God gives rules because He's loving. 
The body of Christ has parameters to it, behavioral standards, because they are reflecting the love of God, because doing wrong is not good for people. It is not loving to encourage wrong. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, but rejoices in the truth. This is why, for example, um, championing transgender is not loving to God because it's not—it's inconsistent with His plan, Genesis 1. Uh, But it's also not loving your neighbor because it is promoting and encouraging a brokenness that, when done that way, will never be healed. And that's why, by the way, that the suicide rate for transgenders is 20 times the national average. Oh, that's because all you Christians are so mean to the transgenders, they're going to kill themselves. Wait a minute. I'm not talking about America. (laughs) I'm talking about Sweden. Even in Sweden, where they have a very sanguine attitude about this kind of thing, and there's plenty of encouragement, which, by the way, there is massive amount of encouragement in this culture. I mean, I can't imagine anything right now that is encouraged more on a public level than transgenderism. There is no virtue, if you think of classical virtues, that is being encouraged more in classrooms, uh, that is being encouraged any more than this. This is everything. You've got to get your pronouns right, and if you don't, if you misgender, you could lose your job in many cases. You certainly will be vilified. So it isn't like there's all this pressure against transgenders in our culture, but especially in Sweden, it's so—that's no big deal. Yet it's still 20 times higher than the national average. Why is that? By the way, that's footnoted in Street Smarts. Why is that? Because something is wrong. Something is wrong with chan- in, in, with those who uh, have uh, have gender dysphoria, and then seek to become transgendered to 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 rectify the problem. I mean, when I say problem, a person who says I'm a man in a woman's body or a woman stuck in a man's body—that's an—that's not just implicit; it's an explicit affirmation that there's a problem here. Now, they think to fix it, you got to change the body, not the mind. The body doesn't change very easily. You can cut it up, mutilate it, but you're not going to make it into a different sex. That's not possible. The mind, you can do more with. And uh, health is when the mind fits the body that God gave to you and you are unified whole. That's health, okay? So, when, so, point being, loving means to try to encourage you towards health and wholeness. And if you come into the body of Christ or venture near, because, the, because salvation is for anyone— it does not mean that everyone is going to be happy with the standards that God himself has set for conduct in the community of the body of Christ. It's for anyone, but not everyone. And part of the 
part of the tragedy in my mind, <clears throat> what I see in, in, in churches now, and it's everywhere. I mean, not in the churches I go into, because churches I go into are churches that invite me or standers and speaker to do what we do, and so they're not given to this kind of thing. They're given to standing tall and standing firm in a hostile culture, and they want some help to do that, and this is what we can give them, some help. But the, the, the model churches that are, are, are folding under cultural pressure on these kinds of issues is just amazing. Didn't we talk about um, Amy Grant having a same-sex wedding on her property? For example, oh, well, this is Jesus. This is expressing Jesus. I don't know exactly how she put it. I don't have the article in front of me, but it's like, it's kind of like what Jesus would do, or this is loving one another, and this is accepting, and this is what celebrating, and this is what Jesus is all about, or something to that effect. Pardon me, Amy, if I'm misquoting, but I do not think I'm mischaracterizing. How, how does that happen? The culture got to her. That's what happened. The culture is getting to all kinds of people. So when I, there I am in a Calvary chapel, and I love Calvary chapels because they preach the Word. They're faithful. They, Everybody's got a Bible. You come to church, they all got a Bible. Why? Because they're going to be teaching out of the Bible. I even chastised my own church once not too long ago when I was filling in for our pastor, and I said, I want you to turn to the passage in question. Wait a minute. You got a Bible, right? You don't have a Bible? What are you doing here in church without a Bible? I wouldn't even put the verses on the screen. Open your Bibles. Oh, your visitor? Good. Look to the guy next to you. They got a Bible. Read on with them. Anyway, um, so it was like an awkward moment there, but I was kind of big brother saying, hey, straighten up. Get with this program. Bring your Bibles. You don't have to do that at Calvary Chapels. They do that. I love those guys. And so this is the first time I ever saw anything like this which is not an expression of Calvary chapels, but an expression of that particular Calvary chapel and the principles that drive them. I loved every one of them. Dedicated to doctrine. Great. Culture of honor. Risk it all. It's not a job. Lock shields. On a mission. Generosity multiplies capacity. I think there were some more, too, but the one that I'm focusing in on. For anyone. Our doors are open. You want to come in? Come on in. The gospel is there for everyone, but not everyone, because not everyone's going to like it. And we don't have to change to suit your personal interests. We refuse to cater to personal preference in our pursuit of God. And while everyone is important to us, make no mistake about that, we are more concerned with reaching the lost than pacifying the critics. Now, I guess if I were writing this, I wouldn't put reaching lost. I would say we are more, because some people are going to say we got to mellow out so we can reach the lost. We got to, you know, soften our edges a little bit. We got to not be so demanding so that more people will come in and then we might reach more of the lost. I would put rather we are more concerned with honoring God than pacifying the critics. Because the measure in my mind, and again, I'm not criticizing Calvary, I think this is great, but the measure in my mind is not how many people get saved. 
The measure in my mind is whether we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So to me, I think if I had any were to alter this, I would say we're more concerned with honoring the Lord, which obviously entails reaching the lost and not pacifying the critics. I think I've said it here before. I'm not sure you'll hear it again. Mark 15, 15. That's our passion narrative. Uh, Jesus is with Pilate. Pilate's trying to get Jesus off. He's trying to offer Barabbas or Christ. He's looking for an opportunity to get Jesus off, because Barabbas is guilty, Jesus is not. Who do you want? Barabbas. What do I do with Jesus? Crucify him. And verse 15 of chapter, chapter 15 is telling. And it starts this way, wishing to please the crowd. Wishing to please the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas and had Jesus scourged and crucified. And see, that's what I don't want to do. No church. I love it. We're more concerned with reaching the lost than pacifying the critics. We don't pacify critics. We answer critics. We don't please the crowd. We don't go along with the mob. They are never going to like us unless we completely defect. If we're just a little bit nicer from their perspective, that's not enough for them. The Christian must completely defect on every issue that matters. And by the way, that's called the progressive church. On every issue that matters, they have defected. Now, they still call themselves Christians, but they have a cultural—they bought into the entire cultural ethic, okay? They're not Christian in any way, shape, or form, except for the, the name, I guess, they used to label themselves and with, and, uh, and, and that uh, they quote Jesus when it's convenient. While everyone is important to us, we are more concerned with reaching the lost than pacifying the critics. For anyone, not everyone. Bravo. Good for you, Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque. All right, let's take a break, and we'll get calls coming back on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. 
You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. If uh, we don't get any calls later this hour, um, by the way, if you want to call and you're listening live streaming, uh, the number is 855-243-9975. You can call that if you like right now. 855-243-9975. And uh, if you're not listening right now, that's the number to call on Tuesdays from four until six. Okay. Uh, but if nobody calls in, that's fine. I've got plenty of calls to answer uh, using our uh, open mic calls. And that's where you can actually call in to a different number, whatever you want, and leave a recording uh, with your question. Or you can just go to our website, um, go to our homepage, str.org under podcasts and live podcasts. There's a uh, there's a set of instructions you can follow to record your own call. And uh, if you want to dial in the open mic calls, 857-342-5787. You want to be clever, that's 857-DIAL-STR. I never like the letters because it takes too long to punch them out. 857-342-5787. Okay, we have a call here from Brandon about AI. I was talking about artificial intelligence uh, a little bit earlier, and so was that this hour or is that last hour? In any event, let's uh, hear what Brandon has to say. Hi, Greg and Amy. I wanted to ask some questions related to AI. As you've probably seen, programs have been released called AI chatbots that can generate realistic, human-like responses to anything, even to the level of writing essays or simulating conversation. I have a science background, so I understand a bit how they work, that their output is calculated based on probabilities that they got from sampling a very large amount of text. Consequently, I know the computer isn't being rational or really weighing ideas, but the program is quite convincing and sounding like it is. So even though I know these limits, I found this current AI to be very unsettling. I guess I had thought that language and the processing of complex ideas was something unique to humans and maybe even part of the image of God. I can't quite put my finger on it, but the fact that AI can fake it has really been bothering me. Can you help me out with this? So first, how does the current AI relate to the image of God in people, if it does at all? And second, do you think that AI can ever become truly self-aware? My instinct is to say no, since I don't think that in the effect, AI could be greater than its cause, humans, but I didn't expect AI to make it this far either. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, as this issue has really been bothering me lately, and I'm not sure how to articulate why. Thanks, and God bless. 
All right, Brandon, thank you for that. And uh, I have a summary here that Amy has put together for me, and there's a lot there. And I do think that AI, artificial intelligence, has made, um, or people have made, maybe I should be careful how I choose my words, programmers have made um, stunning advances with being able to develop AI and use it for amazing things. I was just introduced to ChatGPT uh, maybe two months ago or three months ago by my brother-in-law, and he said, you will not believe this. I asked this question, and it had to do with the history of some local place, and bam, just like that, you have this thoroughgoing analysis of the history of this local place, paragraphs, common sense language, uh, right, <laughs> spelling and grammar and everything. And I do think it's amazing. I mean, I've thought about this even in something very simple. You have your you have your GPS on your iPhone, and you put that little speaker on, which I usually don't have on because people drive me nutty with every every description, but it doesn't sound like you're a computer and words are paced together. It sounds like an actual human individual, male or female, from different countries with different accents, if you choose, that is speaking normal language about every turn that you could make anywhere in the world, maybe. I don't know. How do they do that? How do they know what's coming out? How do they sound so natural? I I don't know how that works, but it is amazing. So there's no question that this is kind of amazing, but it raises questions. You remember, some of you remember back in 1968 or 69, the the movie 2002, which was then a futuristic film about a computer that uh, was intelligent, had apparently its own consciousness, and just went out of control and took over. Good morning, Dave. You know, that guy. All right, so um, can that happen here? Is that what's going on? How do we integrate all of this? And I I don't know how to answer all of your questions on this one, Brandon. There was a lot there, but um, I wanted to underscore a couple of aspects um, or a couple things to get you thinking. First of all, you said something about the human-like capabilities of AI. And and I I paused and corrected myself at some point when I talked about not what AI is able has has is able to do, but what programmers have been able to do with AI. Because the A stands for artificial. It's not real intelligence. It's artificial. No, it, that doesn't mean that artificial intelligence can't be developed to such a degree that it takes over. But it's not a mind that takes over. It is programming that takes over. This, by the way, is one of the reasons I do not like these self-driving cars. And there is a commercial I saw where it was for one of those self-driving cars, and and everybody's in the car. It's like a big SUV, and it's driving itself and passing cars and moving and making all these kind of decisions. And, uh, and the people are clapping. All together, like they're, look at, no hands, look, Bono hands. That's from another commercial way back when. They're clapping because, look at, the car's doing everything, and look at us, we're free. I do not want a car to drive itself. I want to drive the car. I'm fully capable. 
I don't even like those soap dispensers that you put your hand under because nine times out of ten they don't work or the paper towel things why do I need an automatic thing to do what I can do probably better all by myself I don't want do not want the human element to be supplanted where it's not necessary for it to be supplanted doesn't help in my view and sometimes it's substandard like in the men's room in the LAX trying to get my hands washed and dried all right so these are human-like. They do things because they've been programmed by humans to do certain things. Well, they can learn. Well, yeah, but the learning is artificial, too. So if you're on your phone and you keep correcting something and you keep changing on my phone, if I dictate Amy, it's A-I-M-E-E -E, every single—I should say not every every single time, but it, because there's something in my—I don't know why. is there, There's an Amy like that in my calendar, or not my calendar, but my context. But what about A-M-I? A-M-Y, rather, because that's who I'm writing to, Amy right here, Amy Hall. And eventually you correct it enough, it's going to figure out, well, see, now I'm using consciousness language, right? It's going to, it's going to change what it autofills to the kind of correction you've made, and so it looks like it's learning, but it's not learning. That's just anthropomorphic language. It is following the code, the code that human beings put in. So I'm not saying there's no dangers here. But I'm saying this is something made by humans to accomplish an end. Humans made in the image of God. I, I don't see any compromise or concern about our understanding of the image of God in man when image makers can make amazing things. I drive a Ford F-150. 2014. I love that vehicle. My daughters and my wife call it the bubble because it's nice and big and safe feeling, and it does what I want it to do. Now, compared to artificial intelligence, it, I mean, it's not as extravagant as that, but if you think of a Model T and an F-150, boy, there's a big difference there. And so human beings are capable, since they are made in the image of God, of making amazing things. And because the things they make can are amazing and can do amazing things doesn't take anything away from the image of God in man. <clears throat> There's no image of Ford in the Ford. I mean, after a fashion. I mean, it is a Ford, but y y you see what I'm saying. We, we don't think, oh, these are taking on a life of their own. It's Ford that made it, and I guess it reflects the intelligence of Ford engineers, but it's still just a thing. It's not thinking. It can act like it's thinking sometimes, um, like AI does, but doesn't mean it's thinking. Thinking is a conscious process, all right? And uh, what, Brandon, you asked is, not only how does current AI relate to the image of God in people, when I've answered that by saying it reflects the image of God in people. It's artificial intelligence. It is reflecting the actual intelligence of the people who programmed it this way. All it is is dominoes falling. Event causation in a sophisticated way. There is no agency. Um, and then the question here, second, is could AI ever become truly self-aware? <clears throat> no, because AI isn't a thing in that sense. It's not a substance.
it's a it's a an acronym used to describe certain capabilities that human beings who are agents build into machines. That's all. So in my 2002 Chevy Tahoe, which has 316,000 miles on it and sitting in a driveway up in northern Wisconsin right now, if I want to start that, I have to turn the key and hold it until it kicks in. In my 2014 F-150, I just turn the key once and let it go, and then it chugs, chug, 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 chugs until it turns over and starts. I don't have to keep holding it, and I can't hit that key and make it grind while it's already running. It won't grind. That's an improvement. So there's a difference between the 2002 Tahoe and the 2014 F-150. They have different capabilities. Why? Because people who are smart find better ways to do things and build those better ways into machines. And so the machine does what it is programmed or designed to mechanically do. Dominoes falling, that's all it is. There are no decision makers. There is no consciousness, nor can there be consciousness, because in AI there's nothing to possess the consciousness. Consciousness, in our case, is possessed by us. There are bodies in which consciousness, um, in a certain sense, abides. Now, can you be conscious without a body? Of course. Near-death experiences is one example. When we die, we still are ourselves and are located in a different dimension until we get new bodies. But when it becomes, but th- that's the way conscious consciousness works in human bodies. But how, you know, how could, how, how is it that AI could become self-aware? What is it that becomes self-aware? All you're talking about is zeros and ones. What, what is the thing that becomes self-aware? What is the substance that can possess self-awareness? It's not going to happen. So, uh, I'm not concerned about AI in that regard, but I am concerned about AI in a certain sense taking over things, not volitionally, like it has a mind of its own and then it starts taking over. But, you know, in the Industrial Revolution uh, started in the, what, the late 19th, early 20th century, yeah, um, the, what was the concern? 19th and early 20th century, I should say. What was the concern? The concern is that you're, you're working people out of a job. Machines are going to do this. Well, that's what happened. But the people got other jobs. They found other places. They opened up other niches that they could serve and work productively. And, of course, one of them is in, like white-collar. And now in the last 50 years, you know, digital, the whole digital world, etc. But... Um, <clears throat> Uh, the question now is if what happens when AI takes over all those things? You can automate a whole bunch of things that uh, white collar folk used to do. And what happens when all of that and lots of people uh, their jobs are supplanted by the work AI could do, and there's no place else for them to turn. And especially what happens when those people are supplanted and the jobs are fewer. And they don't have a motivation to do anything anyway, because they've been taught that they deserve lots of stuff for free without doing anything. The entitlement culture. 
Now, that's something culturally to be concerned with. All these young people with no place to go and nothing to do, especially guys, dangerous. Dangerous. You think you've seen toxic masculinity? Which I think is a distortion of the truth, but nevertheless, um, there is a danger when you have a lot of single men not gainfully employed. They're going to do something what? Okay, so there are concerns here sociologically. I haven't pursued this. I'm not going to do a deep dive in it. I'm too old for that. Let my young guns do that. But this is something we got to be thinking about and the dangers of it. But I don't think the danger is that it somehow supplants or distorts or eclipses the image of God in man. And I do not think that AI can be some self-aware, because all AI is is zeros and ones. It's not even a thing in one sense. It's not a substance. It's not a... <clears throat> now, can your computer become self-aware? Now, there's a specific thing. The answer to that is no, I don't think so either. Um, and if it did become self-aware, it would have to have a soul, because that's what self-awareness is, a an invisible self united with a physical thing there, the computer. Um, now you have an agent, but the nature of consciousness is such that it cannot be simply produced by a physical process. And I think this is pretty obvious. Anyway, that's the way it seems right now. I have no reason to believe any physical process can produce consciousness. This becomes a problem for Darwinian evolution and human consciousness, or consciousness or sentience with any creature. All right, uh, let's take another break, and then uh, we'll come back to more of your calls, uh, your open mic calls, unless you call me in the meantime. Greg Kokel here. Stay with us. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. All right, I just... Uh 
Mea culpa here, just clarification. Last weekend at CIA, I was not in a Calvary chapel. I was in Calvary Church. But all the really nice things that I said about Calvary chapels, it still applies. <laughs> That's all true. Okay, but this wasn't a Calvary chapel. It was a Calvary church. And there's gazillions of Calvary churches. I have no idea what their denominational. We have a Calvary church in uh, in, in Thousand Oaks or Westlake Village, uh, actually, technically, but they're right, right in our community. Go on to it many times. That's where my daughter goes to uh, youth group. <clears throat> but um, so, okay, sorry, Calvary Church mischaracterizing you, but um, I mixed you up with a good group of people, and I still love what I read on your wall about all your principles. All right, so there. Got that squared away. Did I make any other mistakes last hour, Amy? This is, she's, see, this is, look, this is the advantage of having a magnificent team. Because, you know, if you mess up, then you find out quickly in a nice way, and you can fix it. And, uh, you know, I I mess up as much as anyone and sometimes more than others. So I got to have a good team helping me out and squaring me away. All right, let's see what we got here. I want to hear from Ingrid. Uh, she has some questions about uh, same-sex attraction, people in the church, etc. Let's see what she has to say. Ingrid? My name is Ingrid. I appreciate you taking the time to answer all of our questions. My question is specific to homosexuality and, frankly, just sin in general. I recently had a discussion with two friends who are advocates for what is called a gay Christian and that they believe that it is preferable for a gay Christian to go to a, say, a Methodist church that allows for gay Christianity. And I frankly disagree with that because I think that there's no benefit to going to a church that affirms sin because that to me is essentially the same thing as never going to a church at all because it's not true biblical Christianity. But the second question that frankly kind of stumped me was, what's the difference between someone who is living in homosexuality versus someone who is living in, in pride or, you know, insert whatever other sin there is. You know, we're all prideful. We all fall short of the glory of God. So what is the difference in someone who is continuing to practice homosexuality versus someone who is living in alcoholism or pride or whatever it may be? It's easier for me to think of alcoholism than pride. You know, it's one is a temptation and well frankly both are temptations but one is more clear than the other because while I may not be an alcoholic I certainly have my moments of pride mm -hmm. and I just wanted to get some clarity on that um, but thank you so much I really appreciate it um, have a blessed day okay thank you Ingrid and thank you for your confidence that I will be able to answer all your questions uh, not sure if that's the case but I'll, I'll do my best with this one Okay, regarding the first issue, am I right in thinking a person with same-sex attraction shouldn't attend a church that affirms their sin? Um, yes. <laughs> um, because if a person has same-sex attraction and they're a Christian, God's answer to that is not heterosexuality, as Christopher Ewan um, points out, but holiness. Okay? Um, some people with 
same-sex attraction who have lived a homosexual or lesbian lifestyle and have abandoned that as Christians have actually developed a, a, a lifestyle that uh, of heterosexual behavior. Um, uh, Rosaria Butterfield is one example, married kids, etc. You know, I, I don't know what's going on on the inside, and it's not wouldn't be surprising to me if those who have had same-sex attraction in the past and now are living a more sexually normal lifestyle still may struggle with that. That happens, okay? <clears throat> but that's not against them. That's their plus. Everybody struggles with temptations of various sorts, and many times those are sexual temptations, sexual attractions that are not appropriate to live out. And the fact that we're feeling the attraction is an evidence of our fallenness, okay? But if you are a follower of Jesus and you have same-sex attraction and you want to be holy, don't go to a church that encourages you not to be holy. Like the Methodist Church was mentioned by Ingrid there, and I don't know that all—that's certainly not all Methodist Church would do that, but uh, characteristically United Methodists, for example, are, except for in some places in the South, tend to be pretty leftist on these kinds of things, okay? It's church by church, but as a whole, you're going to get more of that kind of uh, encouragement. Oh, no big deal. We affirm that in some of these churches— are even going to ordain homosexuals and uh, and also do same-sex uh, services, etc., weddings, etc. So, no, you don't, as you put it, you don't want to attend a church that's going to affirm sin. Bad news. Okay, now, if you are committed to, um, to living a, a sinful lifestyle, go wherever you want. You know, because you're not a Christian. Why would I say that? Because that's what Paul says. First Corinthians chapter um, 6. Is that right? Yeah. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, that's not the only sins that are mentioned there, but those are the sexual sins, since that's our topic. If you are living like hell, you're probably going there. That's what Paul's saying. These are indicatives. This is not a standard that you maintain to earn your way to heaven. He's saying this is the way Christians are supposed to be living, which he says underneath, such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if that's true of you, you shouldn't be living anything like this, like any of the others. And by the way, the others that were mentioned, this goes to the second point. And the second point is, what about other sins? The same thing applies. Now, you mentioned, uh, Ingrid, you mentioned um, pride. Well, pride is a character flaw. It's expressed in attitudes and in behaviors, but it's character flaw. It's different than than an actual behavior that the behavior is identified as a sin. No, I'm not trying to kind of give the give the pass to pride, but it does seem to me they're a little bit different categories. But if you're living as an arrogant person where pride is taken over, well, then it's an indicative. What are you doing? 
This isn't the way Christians. Maybe not a Christian. Okay. Now, in in Romans eight, we have this this longest passage where Paul makes a comparison <clears throat> between those who are according to the flesh, is the way he characterizes it, and according to the spirit. Now, we talk about it in this way. We say, well, you know, yesterday I was really mad at my children, and I got in the flesh. But now, you know, I said I was sorry, I repented, now I'm back in the Spirit. Now, we are using language that, of course, all of us understand what we're talking about. But the problem is, we are using the language of in the flesh and in the Spirit in a different way than Paul had in mind when he used that language in Romans 8. And we sometimes are at risk, then, of importing our definitions into the text itself. Paul means something different there. In the flesh means to be unregenerate. He said, if you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. It's impossible to do so. But you are not in the flesh, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if He doesn't, you are none of His. You don't belong to Him. You're either in the Spirit that you belong to Him because you're regenerate, or you're in the flesh, you're living like the rest of the world, and it's impossible to please God. Okay, two trajectories there. Now, how does any one individual know for sure if somebody else or even themselves is on the right trajectory? And it's the manner of life that indicates that's part of it. And that's why Paul says in that passage, if you are in the Spirit, you are by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the flesh. For all who are led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. Now, notice how the phrase led by the Spirit, according to Paul's use of the term, is putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit's power. It isn't getting nudge, nudge, hint, hint. This is where God wants you to go and what He wants you to do in your own individual decision-making. This is another way where we have a way that we use the term led by the Spirit, and we read it into a text where Paul means something entirely different. But the point I'm making is, the kinds of things that should characterize our lives is fighting against the flesh in the power of the Spirit and overcoming the flesh in that way. Paul uses the same language of led by the Spirit in Galatians 5. Towards the end, he means the same thing. If you, are, if you walk by the Spirit, you are not going to carry out the desires of the flesh. Because if you're led by the Spirit, there's in parallel there, then you are not under the law. The reason is, if you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you are already fulfilling the law's purposes, broad purposes. So, um, so here, so here we, w- w- with regards to your second part of your question, Ingrid. Yes, we have, we have a behavior pattern in our lives, and what First Corinthians chapter six is saying is that if there is behavior patterns that are consistent of non are, are like non-believers then then that's a problem and it it probably indicates that we are not believers at all so let me read that whole passage or do you not know this is first corinthians 6 verse 9 that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god okay you're living an unrighteous life that's bad bad sign bad indicator of what's actually going on inside then he gives examples and I'll read the whole passage then here. Neither fornicators, think youth group now, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, that's a 
character flaw there. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's chapter 6. Chapter 5, Paul is talking about someone who's doing a lot of nasties in the church, sleeping with his mother, probably stepmother in this particular case. And, uh, and Paul says, don't associate with somebody like that. Now, I wasn't talking about associating with non, not associating with non-Christians. I was talking about not associating with Christians. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, not those in the world. But with, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he picks up this theme in chapter 5, verse 11, in chapter 6, in verse 9, and following, just saying the same thing. If this is the way you live, then whatever the sin happens to be, whether it's a character flaw or whether it's an action, if you're living like hell, you're probably going there. Simplest way of me putting it. Okay, friends, thanks for spending time with me today. Greg Kokel for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.